Turn your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. We teach our Bible drillers to find Obadiah in eight seconds. How are you doing? <laughs> if you're a Bible driller, that's the last book you want to hear called out is the dreaded Obadiah. Often only one or two pages in your canon, hard to find Obadiah. Probably not many of us have a favorite Bible verse that comes from Obadiah. I've never had anyone tell me, oh, for the funeral, would you use Obadiah? It just doesn't happen. Not a good wedding text in here either. Uh, Obadiah, feuding families in Obadiah. It all started when William Anderson Hatfield, his nickname was Devil Ants. If your nickname is Devil, that tells you something. When Devil Ants Hatfield of West Virginia stole a pig from Randolph McCoy of Kentucky. Combine that with competition over mountain timber and you have what became a world-renowned feud between the infamous Hatfield versus the McCoys, a family feud of hillbilly hilarity. But it wasn't always a laughing matter. Back during this 19th century shooting war between the two families, at least 12 people were dead, murdered over the years. It's the image of the Hatfield and McCoys, the feuding hillbillies, that submitted the image in our minds of Appalachia as being a, a place full of hillbillies running around with guns. Election Day, 1882, three of the McCoys' sons, three of Randolph's boys, shot and killed, stabbed Ellison Hatfield. He wasn't murdered at first, but Devil Ant said, if my boy dies, they will pay blood for blood. Ellison did die. And Devil Ant's Hatfield saw three of the McCoy boys down by some pawpaw bushes and tied them to the bushes and murdered all three of them. The last victim was Ellison Mounts, who was rumored to be the illegitimate son of Ellison Hatfield, he was hanged in Pikeville in 1890 for taking part in a raid that left two McCoys dead, back and forth and back and forth, thus the Hatfields and the McCoys. The feud gained such world-famous attention. There are movies made about it. There's a book written, Feud, Hatfields, McCoys, and Social Change in Appalachia, 1860 to 1900. Yes, it was hot and heavy between the Hatfield and the McCoys in the late 1800s. But the Edomites and the Israelites could have given the Hatfield and the McCoys a run for their money. And this feud didn't start over the stealing of a pig. It started rather over the stealing of a birthright. Obadiah is contextually placed in the 6th century B.C. But you have to go all the, way, all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, 
to find the beginning of this family feud that existed amongst the sons of Isaac, the sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau. That's because the Edomites, the nation addressed by the prophet Obadiah in this short little book, are the direct descendants of Esau. And the Israelites are the descendants of Jacob. A feud, families fighting and fussing forever. How does 800 years sound? That's how long this feud lasts. It all started, the feud started in the womb. Do you remember that? Esau emerged first from the womb, but Jacob was a hill grabber. He was grabbing his brother's hill, trying to reverse the birth order and move to the first position of birthright and blessing. Jacob used trickery and deceit and manipulation to steal both the birthright first and then the blessing from his brother Esau. On one occasion, brother Esau comes in. He's famished from working forever in the fields. You remember he's hungry. He's a crude being. All he thinks about is his stomach. And, well, it just so happens that Jacob is in the right place with his Palestinian potluck porridge, that stew, that red stuff that he made. Gimme, gimme, literal translation. Gimme, gimme. He's crude. Gimme that red stuff, brother. Genesis 25, 30 says that's where we get the name for the whole nation of Edom. It means red. They're named red because Esau was crude and sold his birthright for the red porridge, the red stew. What good will it do me? I'll starve to death. What good will the birthright do if, I, if I'm famished, said Esau. So he traded his birthright for one pot of red porridge. And then the other big thievery occurs. You remember how Isaac calls Esau in and says, go out and hunt and find me some of that wonderful wild game and make that wild game casserole that I love, that savory dish, and bring it back to me. I'm getting old. It's time for me to give my blessing to my oldest son, Esau. Yes, the birthright was gone, but Esau still had the all-important blessing. You remember that their mom is listening in, hiding in the bushes, so to speak, and Rebecca hears. And she says to Jacob, now hurry, get in a hurry. And she places goat hair on his arms here. He puts on the cloak of his brother that has the wild smell of the outdoors. You know, when you're little boys, you're playing, you walk in, your mother says, you smell outdoorsy. Esau smelled outdoorsy all the time. So he put on his outdoorsy-smelling brother's cloak. He comes in, and Isaac's a little bit unsure. Something doesn't seem right. So he says, come closer, and he fills the forearms, and indeed, they're hairy like the arms of Esau. And he says, come even closer, and he takes a savory smell, and it smells like Esau because Jacob has his cloak. And then he tastes the dish, and, well, Rebecca was able to make the goats taste like the wild dish with certain seasoning. And there, right then and there, the Father gives the blessing to the wrong boy. Remember about the time that Jacob is ex exiting the tent of the father that Esau comes in 
And he asked for the blessing, and he says, oh, no, I've already blessed your brother. Well, can't you bless me too? I can, but I can't bless you for the blessing I've given your brother. Twice, Jacob outdoes the oldest. And we're told in Genesis 25, therefore, Esau despised Jacob. And I'm here to tell you that feuding fighting and fussing forever went on from generation to generation and to generation even more so than the Hatfield and the McCoys. And although it appears that nice passage in Genesis 33 where the two individuals make up, I'm here to tell you that the family feuding went on forever. It goes on for the next 800 years. After the Jews, that is Jacob's descendants, were released from Egypt following 400 years of slavery. You remember, they wanted to take the shortest route back to Canaan, back to their homeland. But the Edomites came out and said, you won't pass through our land. We'll pay you for whatever water we use. We won't eat anything. We'll just stay on the highway, they argue. Please, Edomites, let us pass through. The descendants of Jacob, asking the descendants of Esau, can we take the easy route across your property? You shall not. And they show up with swords and spears and will not allow the Israelites across their land. They would not let them have food. They would not give their brother water. The animosity there 400 years later still between the nations. Fast forward 200 more years. Now we're at 600 years you think the feuding's over now? No, Saul leaves the Israelites against the Edomites in 1 Samuel 14, and David conquers them in 2 Samuel 8. Fast forward a few more centuries, and Edomites joined with the Babylonians. Now, this is the worst of all, and that's what Obadiah is about. The Edomites joined the Babylonians in the destruction and the desecration of both the city of Jerusalem and God's holy temple, the temple of Solomon. And so it was. For 800 years, fighting and fussing forever back and forth between Israel and the Edomites, 800 years. But there weren't just 12 lives taken in this family feud. Rather, the pages of history are strong with the bodies of the Edomites and the Israelites, cousins killing cousins in war. The book of Obadiah comes from this family conflict. And God is punishing both the Israelites and the Edomites. The oddest thing happened when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in the 6th century. Rather than weeping, over their brother's misfortune. The Edomites celebrate. They actually capture some of ancient Israel and turn them in to the pagan Babylonians. And they help knock down the walls of God's temple. The Edomites, a descendant of Isaac. Well, the prophecy is graphic. God will judge the Edomites because the way they have treated his people. Look at verse 10 of Obadiah. Because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. And you will be cut off forever. On that day you stood aloof. 
On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate, that's the Babylonians here defeating Jerusalem, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of the enemies. Don't you gloat over your brother's bad day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah and the day of their destruction. Yes, you do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Notice verse 14, do not imprison their survivors. When the pagan Babylonians come in to take over God's city and to take away the wealth from the treasury of the temple, they help, they help the Babylonians. Instead of helping their brothers, God watches the Edomites. It's hard, isn't it? Not to want to see your competitor fall. It must be the most evil of all evils. To take joy in someone else's calamity, to rejoice in someone else's fall. It's being an Edomite. Unfortunately, I fear there is a little bit of Edomite in all of us. Somebody you despise, student, gets cut from the football team. What do you do, student? Do you smile just a little bit inside? Or she really thinks that she's somebody on campus. She struts around. And then, to everyone's surprise, she doesn't make the cheerleading squad. In fact, she slips and falls during the tryouts. And you take just a little joy in her downfall. For adults, he drives a privileged automobile, prestigious car, brags about all the money that he makes all the time, wears it all on his sleeve. You find out a few years later that his company was caught padding the books and things are not as they claim or seem. You've been jealous about his money and his power and his prestige. Do you take just a little bit of joy? And you find out he's filed for chapter 13. There's just a little bit of Edomite in you. There's just a little bit of Edomite in me. We must be careful to never, ever take joy over the downfall or destruction of someone else. They fire you. It's not justified. You have to leave the company. They call in a new manager, and three years down the road, the business is down to half, and they fire the one that replaced you. Despite the fact he had nothing to do with your removal, he grinned just a little bit inside. Obadiah. What was true in those ancient communities is still true today. There is no feud as heated and intense as a family feud. Brothers go for years without speaking to each other. In fact, most ethnic conflicts across the globe today 
from Europe to Asia to Africa to the islands of the Pacific are senseless family feuds, wars between people that come off the same family tree. Most world wars equal family feuds. They share ancestors. Some of them even share grandparents. Family wars are the bloodiest of all. Who hurts you the most? The one you love? The one closest to you? When she says something to you, it hurts like no other. Sisters can rip each other apart in just a glance of an eye or a smirk or a snide comment. Damage that it would take a stranger a year to do can be done between one sister and another. Something that reminds that sister of her shortcomings and her failures, her vulnerability. And husbands and wives talk to each other the ways that hurt, embarrass, demean, belittle each other. There are parents who speak to their children more harshly than one might speak to a dog. All these hurtful words set in motion resentments and hostilities that last long beyond the moment when they're spoken. Before you know it, lines are drawn in the sand and the family feud begins. Sides are taken. Like the Hatfield and the McCoys, pot shots are taken year after year after year. So help me. I'll never speak to you again as long as I live. Slam. Well, don't let the door hit you in the backside, the reply comes. Sometimes months. Sometimes years go by. Sometimes decades go by. The anxiety, the hurt, the resentment, the anger, the bitterness, the negative energy... Our hearts were soft and warm for one that we loved, and now they're crusty and cold and bitter. The family feud. Parents like Isaac, Rebecca, play favorites. You've never been anything but an embarrassment to your father and I. Why can't you be more like your brother? And children do it to parents too. When I grow up, I, I hope I am nothing like you. How many businesses do you know that operate well that have two brothers in the same building? A few I could name, but not many. Two strangers can work side by side, but you put two brothers in the same business and they're always trying to maneuver and feud and fight and manage power and prestige, trying to get ahead of one's sibling. Now I can tell you that there is no more moment of hurt and hatred than a family wedding. A day that should be a day of joy for everyone becomes quite often a day of disaster. The bride sits in my office. She cries. I don't know which one to ask me to walk down the aisle. My biological father expects me to ask him. He feels like it's his place. But my stepfather really raised me, and my mother's pushing for him, and I don't know what to do. And the weight is on her shoulders. It's like a lump in her throat that will not be swallowed away. 
A day that should be a day of joy for her is an intensification of an old family feud. If you invite him to the wedding, just leave my name off. I'm not coming if he's coming. That's really been said before. Sometimes with all the divorce and the feuding and the fighting between families and the fuming, watching the family be escorted down the aisle and who sits where is more humorous than watching high school students play Chinese fire drill at a long red light. Who sits where? The pecking order at the wedding. The Edomites and the Israelites carried a grudge against each other that lasted for eight centuries. And sadly enough, in the end, they both end up destroyed. Origen, a third century scholar, wrote, the Edomites is a people whose name and language have perished from history. The Edomites are gone, Origen tells us. Their language and their history, at least, what God said to Obadiah the prophet in the vision of the words that came true. And the Edomites lost everything, all their heritage, their language, their history. They lost it all because rather than forgive, they wanted to hold on to the family feud. Edomites and Israelites never made up. I am happy to say the Hatfield and McCoys have. In fact, around the year 2000, a picnic was planned between the Hatfield and the McCoys. A family reunion between the descendants of the Hatfields and McCoys. 2,000 Hatfields and McCoys were expected to show up. And the only part of the feud that was left was a softball game between the Hatfields and the McCoys. The descendants of Devil Lance and Randolph McCoy had it out on the softball field. Bo McCoy of Waycross, Georgia, is a minister. He's one of the descendants who organized the whole reunion. The governors of Kentucky and West Virginia showed up to make peace with each other and shake hands. They planned banquets and bus tours. They got to see the old feuding sites. They had bluegrass and gospel music, arts and crafts festival, and lectures about the feud and how it helped perpetuate the stereotypes of the good people of Appalachia. By the way, Devil Lance came forward at a revival and was baptized 10 years before he died. In fact, that preacher used to go around boasting he was the one preacher who actually baptized the devil. <laughs> He'd been working on Devil Lance for decades. Finally, Devil Lance came forward, professed Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he was baptized. And the devil himself lived the last decade of his life in peace because he knew, as I say, in that region of Appalachia, his sins had been washed away in the river, and he was all forgiven. 
It's done with. Hatfield and McCoys, instead of breaking bones, now they're breaking bread together. Every time I saw him, I recalled. He had a feud with First Baptist Church. I'm not sure if he was right and we were wrong or we were wrong and he was right. I wasn't even here when the feud began, which was about three decades ago. But somehow, some way, even before I was here, the church had hurt his feelings, had damaged his self-esteem. I, as representative of First Baptist Church, even though I wasn't here, whenever happened, happened, every time, every time I came around, he was quite confrontational. He worked in a place that was necessary for me to go about once a week. And every time I did, I, I found myself kind of bracing for the next confrontation and trying to be a person of grace. But I represented the church just like the Edomites represented Esau and the Israelites represented Jacob. Years pass, tension every week. I was in his place of employment, and I saw the back of his head, and I kind of braced myself. Okay, here we go. And I said hi, and he said hi. But it sounded differently this time. I went on about my business, and as I was leaving, he invited me into his office, and he said, and I quote, I've been carrying a lot of anger for a long time, and I want to ask you to forgive me. And I, I said, maybe you need to forgive us. We hugged, and like Hatfield and McCoys, we broke bread over lunch. Forgiven, forgotten, no feuding. We didn't share a lot of words that day. We didn't need to. His countenance was different. My heart was warm, and so was his. An embrace, a decades of damage erased. Life is so much easier when you don't try to drag around the baggage of past hurts. If you do, you'll be like the Edomites. It's self-destructive behavior. Family feuds leave everyone walking with a limp. There's that great passage in Paul's, what we call, first letter to the Corinthians. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, it is not arrogant, love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices in truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Love keeps no records of wrong. Control your jealousy. Be patient with those in your family who fail you. Don't brag about your good fortune. And never, ever, never, ever rejoice over the bad fortune of another. The Hatfields and the McCoys playing softball together, 
trading recipes at a family reunion. Who would have ever thunk it? But it can happen. It can happen. Let us pray. Oh God, in this room and those live streaming and those on television, there's some of us who've been Edomites, some of us who've rejoiced at the downfall of another, that we've thrown fuel on the fire of the feud. Some of us have been so small as to smile inside at the slight of our enemy. We had a feud with God for a long time. Instead of taking the life of someone else's son, he sent his own son to die to pay for it. That as Paul would say, we can have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, oh, Father, it ought to mean we have peace with his children, our brothers and sisters. May we be grace even though we're not given grace. And may we be forgiveness even though we're not given forgiveness. And may we be kind even when we're given hatred. That your children will not be caught up in a quid quo pro contest with anyone. We don't have to. We're forgiven children of the King. We abide in His grace and we give His grace. Amen.